This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Martin Strong in for Shane. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, are you okay with hauling oats? How about turkey? Why is it so easy to fall for misinformation online? Social media expert Jesse Miller tells us how misinformation spreads online and how to spot it and how to avoid it. David Ian Gray, retail and marketing expert, tells us if Black Friday deals are worth it for businesses and customers, and if Boxing Day might be the better option for finding deals. All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with... All right. Okay, Ryan, are you okay with Hall and Oats? I'm on a big Hall and Oats thing this year. Mm-hmm. They're having a huge resurgence with Gen Z and Millennials. Huge. I'm, right. not, I'm, not, I'm not joking. Yeah. Like, uh, especially Out of Touch, that song in particular, and a couple of the other ones, just those really smooth, synthy bass lines. They just make for great background music or like foreground music it's really interesting like a lot of people are taking instrumentals and using them in their videos uh or as dance like it's just it's very it's interesting because the albums i believe most of their stuff came out in what late 70s early 80s yeah sort of uh late 70s and mid 80s they had yes so they they had a long career they they have had a very long one, but it's not. It doesn't sound incredibly dated. You know, it, it sounds way ahead of its time, yeah. which is makes it so entertaining to listen to. Although I will say, I don't like "You Make My Dreams Come True." I hate that song. <laughs> I will be honest. Yeah. I can't do that one, and that's not because. It was the Toronto Maple Leafs goal song. Uh-huh. That's not the reason. Right. I just don't like that song. Okay, Leafs fans? Okay. Yeah, that makes okay. sense. I mean, because yeah. I, I lived through the great Hall & Oates scare of the uh, late 70s and early 80s when they were all over the radio, everywhere. They had so many hits. So you just kind of took them for granted and you didn't really appreciate them. But now I think they sound pretty good. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and now... One of the biggest duos of all time, Hall and Oates, have become the subject of their own songs. Well, they can't go for that. Uh, what you may ask? Uh, well, what they can't go for? Each other. One of the biggest selling music duos in history, Hall and Oates, have apparently lost that love and feeling for each other. Daryl Hall has filed a breach of contract lawsuit against John Oates. A judge also signed off on a restraining order against Oates. It's not clear exactly what may have sparked this musical civil war, but the duo has broken up several times over the years and had recently been touring solo. In a podcast interview with Bill Maher, Hall dismissed Oates' creative input and said he was simply a business partner. That was from WGN News. And one interesting detail in all of this, uh, this lawsuit, is that the lawsuit is sealed. So you could say that uh, this case needs... Yeah, so Hall & Oates, yeah, they met, 
while attending Temple University, according to the website of the mm-hmm. official Holonos website. They've been collaborating for decades, writing mega hits like Maneater, uh, You mm. Make My Dreams Come True, which Ryan just can't get enough of. And, uh, <laughs> and Sarah Smile, that's a great song. Do you know that song, Ryan? It's an no, early song, mid-70s, uh, and it's just a beautiful, blue-eyed soul song. That, to me, is when Hall & Oates were at the peak of their powers. And, oh, uh, and the Jingle Bell Rock version. I forgot they've got that Christmas mm-hmm. song. Yeah, well, they kind of had a pretty huge career. I was so surprised to learn this. And the weirdest part is, because I have had this kind of resurgence in of listening to this. I was thinking to myself, are these guys touring? Are they are they still around cuz I bet the tickets are super cheap and that'd be a fun show. And then like 2 days later, the, oh, Holland Oats is no more. The Oats are in a separate bowl. Uh it's not happening anymore. So that w- I was genuinely disappointed to hear that. Very surprised to hear that. I didn't realize that they were still going or alive. I had no clue. I just knew that their songs were out there and were still really good. Yeah. Well, Daryl Hall had some success with a TV show and I think it started on YouTube and it was live from Daryl's house and he used to have guests, all sorts of big musicians would go to his house and they would perform live and it was very, um, you know, really relaxed and uh, informal and uh, it was very, very popular and it's, I think it's still going on. And it's on all sorts of different platforms. But they played seven shows in 2022, uh, but they haven't appeared together this year, according to Rolling Stone. And um, the thing that's weird about this is that this lawsuit that's sealed includes a restraining order that Daryl Hall put out on John Oates which is so weird because that's not like a, like a, a dispute about royalties. Yeah. It seems like it something seems, else. Does it seem like it might be a bit much that, that, uh, the, yeah, I wish I could know the whole story. Cause I just, it just doesn't make sense. Another thing that doesn't make sense about these two, um, the voices don't match the bodies. It should be the other way around. <laughs> when I, when I, when I seriously, I believe this wholeheartedly. I thought that Hall was the guy with the mustache. Because that that voice fit that body. So when I was recording some stuff earlier today and I saw the music videos, I was like, what the heck? Doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. It still weirds me out. Yeah. Well, Daryl Hall had huge hair in the 80s. Um, Just giant hair. It was a lot, a lot of hair. It wasn't really a mullet. It was just this glorious big head of hair. It was funny. And like you say, you know, it, it... it's sort of sad because you say Gen Z and, and young people are really kind of discovering this music and it's too bad that they're, they're not together because they probably could really, you know, do a lot of shows and yeah. So we'll see well, what we happens. Just had a story. Yeah. We had a story uh, just last night, Martin, about a, or back on good news Tuesday, sorry, where this 11 year old became obsessed with Michael McDonald. And just was just only listened to him, went and saw the show, and then he took her like backstage. And she's 11. And so uh, it was a really wholesome story. And I would imagine there's probably an 11 year old out there that really loves Hall and Oates. And now when they try to listen to them, 
they're just gonna get told it's not happening which is <laughs> unfortunate although i've been there like half of my favorite bands they're all dead so yeah it sucks well michael mcdonald so. lives on in in great comedy because first i think of sctv rick moranis when he's um, yes <laughs> such a long way to go and he's the that's a sketch. oh my god that's such a good sketch <laughs> if you've never seen it just google rick moranis sctv michael mcdonald it's the funniest thing and then in the movie 40 year old virgin that uh, we yeah we played a little bit from that yeah, it was so funny because, you know, they're they're working in an electronic store and the TV, it was always on the Michael McDonald video. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny, even though it was making fun of him, I think that helped his sort of image and resurgence. I had no idea who he was until I watched that movie. So, yeah. There you go. Very true. We just got a text about Daryl Hall. Uh, he has a lion's mane of hair. It is a lion's mane of hair. Yeah. In the, in the then, 80s, especially. Oats without a mustache kind of looks like um, Gene Simmons. Yeah, I could now. I kind of looks like Gene Simmons. Yeah, plastic surgery, I think. And and, yeah. and I think it's funny because people who lived through the Great Hall and Oats scare of the late seventies and early eighties, uh, they know what it's like. And I think this person uh, who texted in, who wrote, "The resurgence of Hall and Oats in this economy, haven't we suffered enough?" <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how the the young people love them and the older people have they've just lived with it they heard it on the radio so much well let's keep going uh, ryan o'donnell uh are you okay with turkey um i yeah but here's the thing like if if the turkey's been dried out it's it's awful. Like it just doesn't matter how good the seasoning is. If it's dry, it's just not worth it for me. And and it's so tough to get it to the perfect temperature. At least like you know, it's just tough. And like a big turkey leg is is fine, but I would rather have just like some chicken drumsticks. I don't really see the big up with having a turkey. Although turkey dark meat is good. And this, like the skin and all that is yummy, but I, I'm not, I don't know if I will ever cook a turkey in my entire life. I don't know if I have the itch to do it. And I, I, I honestly, I don't know if it, if I'd feel if it would be worth it. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> to all my American friends, but I am not okay. Yeah. With turkey. I, yeah. I'm with you there. I feel like turkey, yeah. I, I, I do enjoy a great thanksgiving style turkey meal but the turkey is always kind of like well the turkey was okay but it's all the other stuff that i love um but i did i find it kind of dry and not that exciting but uh um you know americans love to deep fry their turkeys that's their solution to uh to to getting a a you know, like a moist, delicious turkey, uh, despite the fact that deep frying a turkey is like throwing gasoline on a fire. Uh, the U.S. government has actually released a PSA warning Americans of the dangers of the deep fry while also teaching you uh, how to do it safely. If that bad boy is ready... Who's calling who a bad boy? We humans are the ones who need public service announcements to teach us cook the turkey, not your home. 
The annual PSA from the Consumer Product Safety Commission was even put to music. A banger to drive home the dangers of deep-frying turkeys. This is the coolest thing that could kill me ever. Combining two American favorites, explosions and turkey. Turkenheimer, someone dubbed it. A play on Oppenheimer, the name of one of the creators of the atomic bomb. The turkeys on TikTok are running wild. I want you to breathe in and breathe out. <laughs> Attempting turkey breast compressions and injections of seasoning. And because the times we're living in, not even the turkey could be safe from getting vaccinated. So I injected it with this juice. <laughs> That's CNN's Jeannie Most with that report. I love her on CNN. Yes. And uh, if you're thinking of frying a turkey this year, safety officials say that if you make any of the mistakes that we're just about to list, you run the risk of uh, burning down your whole house. And these are the things on the list on the, on the list that you should not do. Um, with a turkey if you're going to deep fry it. Uh, One, use too much oil and overheat it. Try to fry a frozen turkey, especially a big one. And uh, we were talking earlier, Ryan, about uh, Mm -hmm. trying to... That's a no-no. You don't fry a frozen turkey. Yeah, it's... um, There's these videos of people that like work at Burger King and they take a full fryer basket and fill it with ice and put it in the deep fryer. Right. And what happens is... It explodes because the water molecules immediately just pop, and that will happen to your turkey. If you try to deep fry a frozen turkey, it will explode. Right. <laughs> and we've, just, we've as simple as that. We've Boom. seen the YouTube videos. I mean, there's no shortage of YouTube so videos. Many of them. So many of them. It's, uh, yeah. And it's so funny. And some of them look good. Yeah. Like, and I don't, not the explosions, the turkeys. When they come out and they, they've been deep fried properly, they can look delicious. And I would love to try it. But it's also the act of actually dunking an entire turkey, which is a large animal in a vat of oil in your garage. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not. I get burns when I try to deep fry shrimp in a pan, you know? Yeah. Like, it's a dangerous game Yeah, playing. I, I think so. We just got a text. Somebody said, don't drop it straight in all at once. Yep. That sounds like a, a fair thing. And the last thing on the, least, the list of what not to do is use your fryer on a porch, in a garage, or next to your house, or if your camera phone is on. Because... <laughs> As we know by all those YouTube videos, if someone is filming it, it's going to go bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's just guaranteed. You're going to end up on GNN or GNN's. (laughs) Wow, that's a that's a Friday moment. CNN's Jeannie Moose's hit list of people to talk about on her segments. You don't want that. Yeah, you don't want that. It's true. And on an average Thanksgiving day in the U.S., they see about 1600 cooking related fires break out. And they say that's more than three times the normal daily figure. <laughs> it's just such an absurd amount. It's so wild. Yeah. It's just, it can't be worth it. I mean, no. it, you can go 
It's America. You can get anything deep fried. I can get a deep fried turkey leg at the Calgary Stampede. No problem. I would recommend maybe trying it first to see if you actually like it before you run the risk of your house exploding. Yeah. 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 I'm going to be feeling very thankful. And you, and you can also do what somebody just text us, texted us in. Uh, they say, get a turkey thigh or wing from the butcher, rub it with a lot of salt and pepper, and cook it low and slow until the meat is tender and the skin is crispy. That's a tasty piece of meat. Yeah. So, so there nice you go. Nice and easy. Yeah. You don't, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are you doing this uh this non-Thanksgiving Day weekend, uh, if you're in Canada. And if you are in the U.S., we do have people listening in the U.S. A happy Thanksgiving. This is The Shift Podcast. I don't know about you, but it's hard to believe that uh, there was a time before radio, TV, and yes, even the internet, uh, when you had to get your news from newspapers. And sometimes that meant you didn't hear about events for a few days, even weeks after they happened. There was time, time to gather facts, time to understand the nuance of what really happened. Uh, Obviously, that's a little different now. Uh, On Wednesday, you no doubt heard about uh, the car that exploded on the Rainbow Bridge border crossing between New York State and Ontario uh, on the American side. Within minutes, the story was all over social media. There were photographs and video taken from people's phones. It was a, a horrific scene, lots of flames and smoke and debris everywhere. And it was hard not to look at that and think it was yet another terrorist attack of some kind, especially with the way the world is at the current moment. So social media went crazy, especially after Fox News broadcast that the case was being treated as terrorism by authorities. That was according to unnamed sources. Social media immediately started blaming people. The most common narrative was that it was because of all the illegal immigrants. Problem was, none of that was true. Now that some time has passed, we're slowly learning what happened. According to the FBI and the governor of New York, it was not terrorism. It was a couple from New York driving a Bentley who originally planned to go to a KISS concert in Toronto. That concert was canceled at the last minute and the couple had apparently spent some time at a casino. There were no explosives found on the scene. So there's still lots of questions, but it doesn't point to a terrorist attack though we have social media to thank for all that speculation. And Jesse Miller is a social media and communication specialist with Mediated Reality, and he's with us now. Thanks for taking the time, Jesse. Oh, thank you for having me, Martin. Yeah, so obviously this is a serious story. Two people died. It was very horrifying for a lot of people. But it's really like a master class in disinformation and how disinformation spreads would would you say that's true? Yeah, there's a, you know, I've been doing, you know, this part of my job for upwards of 15 years. And every story that kind of evolves, you go to this point of the responsibility of media versus the um, polarizing uh, conversations that we see with social media playing a dramatic role in our everyday discourse. But that misinformation versus disinformation piece is really interesting to me because we still, as everyday consumers of of media, don't actually put a pragmatic approach into how we either regurgitate content or kind of push it to other places or even run into our kitchens and, uh, and bring conversation to our family tables. 
And so that misinformation being false or inaccurate information, uh, getting the facts wrong versus disinformation, which is false information, which is deliberately intended to mislead. You know, we we value the idea that we elect politicians or we choose uh, people to participate in broadcast and we hope that they're going to give us good information. And the problem there is that our our uh, our political economy is so polarized. There are individuals always looking to kind of get themselves in a position where they can have the lead. Um, at the same time, we just want a narrative to match how, how we feel. And so when we favor Fox News versus CNN or uh, CBC versus a right-wing platform, there's these pieces here that our nationalistic interests go to, but we forget that we are very much pawns in a corporate structure that is making a lot of money off of people just saying things online and hopefully sharing information that no matter whether it's valid or not, gets clicks. Yeah, it's telling them what they want to hear. And, and it's kind of ironic because I watched a piece uh, this morning on CNN talking about how Fox News got it wrong and they were kind of gloating. But it sort of seems like these news sources are searching for a narrative that fit that fits their narrative. They're they're searching for that story. So when when an explosion happens, they go out of their way to find evidence. For example, if if the narrative is about illegal aliens uh, illegal immigrants, they go out of their way to find stories that support that narrative. And I think that was a case of it yesterday. Yeah. And, and that there is obviously a, a, an appeasement audience. Fox News has been known to, um, you know, go with the fear mongering first. Um, to be fair, CNN does the same thing when it comes to threats to safety and politics. Um, but the reality is you always do pander to your audience who is who is choosing your your channel or dial number over the other one. And that kind of goes to the point of where we've always favored aspects of the broadcaster that we prefer um, and what our family values are, the you know, the table values. And I think, um, you know, if you grew up in a time like the 80s and 90s where your, your, your home TV never changed dial, that really became polarizing in our cable network uh, adventures before the internet when, you know, this is a Fox News home or this is a CNN home. And whether you're Democratic or Republican in that American viewpoint, we still we are seeing that now more in Canada, which I think is an important arc here. Um, we're seeing more polarization in our Canadian dialogue around media. And I know there's people out there who will sit there and say, you know, CBC is government and it's going to always kind of be this left-leaning platform. But we're now seeing Canadian politicians favoring misinformation um, as a polarizing conversation starter uh, to get themselves positioned for the purpose of electoral votes. And, and in that, that idea of our, our, economy, our political economy being, you know, you elect a number of members of parliament and your party gets in, whether you're in a, a majority or minority, um, what we're seeing now is, is less and less the value of that collective kind of, okay, we can all agree that this is real or this is fake. But this idea that if you start off a conversation, then you can kind of get, you know, the clicks going on social media, you can get the Facebook commentary going. And no matter whether something is debunked afterward or, or not, the thing that people believe when they saw it on Facebook, that's the thing that they're going to remember four months from now. And so whether this was a terrorist attack or whether it was two people had too many drinks at a casino and drove their Bentley into a into a customs uh, queue, that that's not the point. The point is, is how much did you get people to believe something off the bat? And that's where there is a lot of money being made. And those Facebook users really don't care that people are making money off of them believing something that's entirely false. Yeah, and it seems like in the old days, if a large news organization got something that wrong, 
that there would be repercussions. But yeah. I'm I'm wondering if there will be any repercussions or if they'll just move on to the next thing. You know, I had an opportunity years and years and years ago to sit down with a very prominent journalist in British Columbia, basically in a conversation over a cocktail. He said, you know, we used to value the idea of being correct. And, and you know, the editor at the newspaper or the, or the TV broadcast would say, do you want to be first or do you want to be correct? And so, yes, everybody's got the hot scoop and you'd run back and try and get it to the late edition of whatever was going out. But if you were incorrect, that was what you had to carry the next morning. And so we actually see more accountability maybe in sports media now. Like if I would <laughs> allege that tomorrow the Edmonton Oilers are going to trade Connor McDavid because of this horrible start for the season. If I am a notable sports reporter and I get that wrong, the next day there are people going to remember that. People aren't necessarily caring about that as much when it comes from our news desk, which is uh, very concerning because the the impacts of people's lives, the impacts of how our, our elections kind of proceed, these are things that we really should we should care about. I know people care about hockey trades and, and, and rumors as well. There's a whole industry there. But the reality of it is that that social media clickbait is something that every day people are trying to figure out how to make a couple extra dollars based on the ire of Canadians, not on the factual information that we can make good choices about. Yeah, it's like the the media is cashing in on the ire, and and so are politicians, I guess. That I mean, they're drumming up this ire, and that's what uh, kind of propels them. And one of the things I hear from politicians that uh, I don't like hearing is that the media is the enemy of the people. You literally hear that phrase from from some politicians and and a lot of other people not in politics. And it seems like the the respect for the media might be at its lowest point since I remember. And are you concerned about that? Only because the the politician themselves is recognizing that that's where they have the ability to get elected. Um, if, if we're going to bring this into politics, yes, Pierre Polivier is very much positioning Canadian media in the uh, anger targets of people who have distrust in media. Now, that is a spillover effect from COVID. That is a spillover effect from Trumpism. Um, there, are, there are a lot of valid uh, approaches there that if you're trying to get your candidate elected, you can very much use the media as the scapegoat. Now, to be fair, there are parts of media that are definitely within that space. And again, left versus right, um, Rebel News does that as equally as as uh, private media groups in Canada who are left leaning. I'm just I'm just putting that out there. But within that, this idea that you don't have to have accountability, and the reason that I'm mentioning Pierre Polibé is because he was quick to highlight this as a terrorist incident um, in a public statement, uh, and there was no factual information from CBSA or the uh, on uh, Ontario Provincial Police or anybody involved on our side to correlate that. So within that, yes, if our uh, elected officials are running with Fox News information and then positioning it as an official statement, uh, Canadians, no matter your political stripe, should be concerned about that um, because it shows that despite our favoritism towards our nationalist values, um, that is a concern uh, that um, should affect any Canadian. We, we, we should value our own internal information, not external pieces. Um, but flip that around into the sense of, of wherever you are on the, on, on the political spectrum, if you only favor what you hear from your elected politician or preferred politician, um, you are always going to be in this kind of silo of, of, of echo when it comes to 
media that favors your narrative. And that's where social media actually plays a very important role in our current society in the sense that you can go further than the echo chamber that you prefer. You can make choices that to listen to other politicians and spend time to hear what they have to say and look at platforms and decide if you are a voter of, 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 maybe concern in your community more so than what's happening on the other side of the country or the perceived ideas of what's happening at the border versus, um, you know, anything else. Your community is where you start. And so in that, we see people jump into any political conversation on social media and it may not affect them at all. It may, it may be something that only affects, uh, you know, their provincial politics, but they don't even live in the province, but they want their opinion to be seen. And so currently we are seeing a number of bad actors in that space where they're trying to get more and more Canadians to be polarized because we're seeing individuals who will make a comment and they'll believe that that person's from, let's say, Thunder Bay. But the thing is, that person is not from Thunder Bay. They're part of a paid group of individuals who are making fake accounts online for the sole purpose of basically stirring the pot in our community network groups. And that's where Facebook, we want more accountability, obviously, when it comes to verification of individuals and making sure that accounts are who they are. But the hard part there is that if people don't have the media literacy to sit there and say, hey, I'm fighting with an account that doesn't even live in this country and doesn't have a vested interest in, in our politics, except for the fact that they're being paid by a group who's going to stir the pot. That's where, unfortunately, um, a number of voters will go to ballot boxes with information fueling their vote that is rooted in misinformation and nothing substantial at all. Right. We're talking to Jesse Miller, social media and communication specialist with Mediated Reality. And, uh, and, and, an interesting thing that the media has seen in the past year is is the new federal regulations about uh, news on social media sites and how the social media sites have to pay. And that resulted in Facebook pulling all the news. What have you seen as an effect of that now that we're not seeing news stories uh, on Facebook like we used to see? Because I, I wondered when this all happened, I wonder, well, maybe this is good. Maybe people will start cultivating a relationship with, you know, with a newspaper where they go directly to that newspaper. And maybe that's a better system for getting news. But what's your take on it? So look, the most the most media literate individuals I've ever met usually have a number of newspapers on their desk. And those newspapers come from a, different, a variety of vantage points. And what they'll do is they'll read the correlating, uh, correlating articles or stories that are similar in, in, in arc, but not necessarily similar in viewpoint. And then they'll make a choice. What we see here with this no news on Facebook is the same kind of concern that we have with media literacy is that if an individual only subscribes to, let's say, a right-leaning page on social media, they're only going to be collecting news from that point. So to your beginning point of is this good? Yes, it is, because you aren't just getting bombarded with this one kind of space where you believe what you read was truthful. So I like the idea that we're not seeing as much um, misinformation in that, in, in that social media space, because I'll say it bluntly, the majority of those consumers are very lazy and do not want to go further than their computer, or their phone to consume news articles. And it's it's good that those individuals may, aren't being bombarded or, or being victimized by this content. Um, the other part of it is, is that if we value only our, our one source of information, then unfortunately we are only going to be receiving that information and, and believing it to be true. So we want individuals to go further. So it's our community newspapers actually that are, are being directly affected because um, 
you want people knowing about the local news that happens in their community. And most of those things are not making big money anyway. They're, they're local, uh, um, you know, community activists, they're local writers who just want somebody in a very remote part of Canada to know what's happening in their neighborhood. And because of the rules, they get slapped as, as well. So you want people going to websites. And so within that, with the more we see local newspapers have the ability to put their content into a space where it's not behind a paywall, it's available online. We hope that they can share a story not necessarily linked directly to it, but then you get enough that somebody goes, oh, I'll take the next step and look this up. And, and again, it is the idea of your neighbor told you a story. You didn't get, they didn't know everything, but you did your own due diligence to find out as much as you could. You maybe asked other people in the neighborhood and you got different points of view because you wanted yourself to be as educated as you could about the topic at hand. Right. Well, Jesse, with your experience, uh, you know, looking into social media literacy, you've done a lot of work with how kids deal with social media. Looking ahead with all the stuff that's going on, are you confident about the future or are you kind of uh, not so confident? I think it's about that consumership. Now, here's the thing. Young people, um, they subscribe to content creators that are stimulating for them. And so whatever, whatever their interest is, they're going to find people who are creating something. So whether it's uh, uh, whether it's news or whether it's it's entertainment, they're going to find individuals. Now, some of those individuals obviously raised, get, get raised to fame. And so those are the D'Amelios of the world, it's the Kardashians of the world. And the question becomes, substance over content, right? And so what I really find interesting is that young people, no matter their interest, do find individuals who are similar to them who are creating something. And so I've met a number of young people who are interested in, you know, they're interested in sports. So they're going to find, you know, individuals who are doing something online that kind of matches their sport. And right now, um, you know, one of the number one volleyball players in the world is a is a college athlete. She's, she's a young person in the States going to university. And she has you know, hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok because she's creating these videos about uh, how she accomplishes the the moves in, in volleyball. And so she's not getting TSN or Sportsnet coverage, but she's getting TikTok coverage. And those young people, especially young female athletes, are seeking her out. So within that, yes, the creator has a platform. That's wonderful. And we don't need a little, you know, 30 second segment on our national broadcast to get that individual some coverage. They can literally have minutes and minutes of co content creation at their own hands and also reap the benefits of it because then they get the clicks, which means they get the uh, the money. And so in that, there are a number of avenues. We're seeing young people really kind of sourcing out good news articles. They're trying their best to kind of diversify how they consume information. Um, and I know that parents sometimes worry about their kids online, but it, it should be a conversation piece where you start with, how was your day at school? And hey, what did you do online today that was interesting? And if your kids are talking to you about the things that they consume, the things they've seen, you're already light years ahead of parents who aren't asking that question. But within that, you might learn about some really interesting things that your kids have bumped into online, whether it be positive or negative, that really can generate conversation about, about path and whether it's uh, you know a video game uh, player that they find is interesting or a content creator, or when it comes down to it, somebody who's just being creative. There are some really amazing people out there doing amazing things online and young people very much are the ones seeking them out because, I mean, there's a, a joke, you know, young people are on TikTok or Instagram, old people are on Facebook. The things that Facebook people find interesting were probably interesting three weeks ago on the internet. And that's <laughs> where, and that's where kids really do take the lead. And so uh, I do encourage parents to ask their kids questions like, what did you learn online today? That's interesting and that we could share. That's that's great advice. And it's, it sounds optimistic to me. 
<laughs> so you know what? I, I, I tell you, Martin, I've seen so much negativity in my job over 15 years, especially with some of the scary stuff like bullying and cyber harassment. And um, uh, I've had my own story attached to that as well that uh, a number of your listeners may, may be aware of. But the thing of it is, is that, um, you know, young people, they are now the curators of the Internet. We, we created this situation for them and they watched us choose our phones over our family values some days. And um, they are now tired of hearing some of the negative. They're going to create some pretty amazing things. Well, a good place to leave it. Thanks so much for talking to us. Jesse Miller is a social media and communication specialist with Mediated Reality. And uh, thanks a lot, Jesse. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Martin. Always great to be on the shift. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you planning to take advantage of all the shopping deals as we move into another Black Friday are you planning on spending less this holiday season? Let me know. one 399 uh, And speaking of shopping, do you remember Boxing Day sales? They used to be a big deal. Huge. And I guess they still have them, but they've certainly been eclipsed by Black Friday, the day after American Thanksgiving. Over the next 24 hours, nearly 150 million people in North America are expected to do some kind of shopping, both online and in the stores. And it's traditionally the busiest shopping day of the entire calendar year. But is this year a little bit different? Inflation reality has set in. And according to a survey by the personal finance company NerdWallet, 31% say they are planning to buy gifts for fewer people. So their their lists are getting smaller. And 30% say they'll be spending less on the presents they do buy. Well, David Ian Gray knows a thing or two about retail trends. He's the founder of the retail consulting firm Dig360. And he's with us now. David, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, you've referred to the upcoming holiday season, 2023, as a nail biter. Uh, is it really going to be that scary for, you know, retailers this year? Yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, and we've already been seeing signs through the summer, uh, especially with the publicly traded retailers where they have to, re you know, reveal the results. It's been a tough second half to the year. And with the surveys coming in, like the one you cited, uh, many fighting for lesser demand. Right. And see where the dust settles by the time we get into January. Yeah. So, I mean, inflation is obviously a huge factor. Um, do you think sometimes that it's overplayed in the media? There's so many stories about inflation or do you think people, um, I think I know the answer to this, but do you think people are really affected by inflation? I think both are right because I think, uh, first of all, if you're, um, there's two things going on. One is uh, product price inflation. So let's just stay there. You know, the cost of whatever you're buying has gone up. That's not true across the board. Uh, technology has tended to be deflationary over time. And I I was just looking at a similar MacBook that I got a year ago. It's about $500 less now. So not every product group is uh, in hyperinflation mode, but uh, certainly food was and it, it is still and uh and some other products but clothing not necessarily and uh you know technology has come down so on that one it's uh we, we oversimplify i think the discussion on the topic of inflation as it relates to interest rates 
it doesn't hit every household the same. So households that are mortgage heavy and uh, and credit card heavy for that matter are now really feeling it. But not everyone's in that boat. There are kids out there that are living with their folks. And maybe the folks are dealing with the burden, but it's not getting passed on to them. And they've got jobs and disposable income. At the other end, we know that people who have either older, who've paid off their mortgages or are in a wealth class, most of us uh, don't really <laughs> touch on. They've actually done better the last few years. Their wealth has increased. So it's not a universal statement. But when we talk about the mainstream, yeah, a lot of people are directly affected. But when I said both are right, the media coverage of it, I think it started to permeate everybody to some degree. And I think people, I've never seen people thinking about really serious budgeting and choices as opposed to, yeah, you know, I have a target, but I'll still buy things on a whim. I think a lot of that has got curtailed at the very least with a wait and see attitude into next year. Right. Right. And so let, let's talk a little bit about retail because you're an expert in retail. Um, it seems like the, the common perception is that stores and malls are under attack from online retailers. Um, what's your overall kind of prediction or view of where retail is headed? Well, the, well, the one thing I think that that is not is sort of a prediction, but maybe it's more of a acknowledgement than a prediction, is that this notion of store versus online has given way to store and online. So we see a lot of online retailers investing in physical stores and rolling those out. A uh, number of years ago. You know, the epitome of online has been Amazon, but they bought Whole Foods. They've been playing with different store concepts. They've gone into fashion, but are now exiting with some beta stores in the States. But if you see that, there's an understanding that online in of itself is not the total solution for shoppers. On the other hand, the idea that you can be a store only without any kind of online uh, social and digital presence, let alone e-com, is also... Um, too limiting. So the the way we, we've now evolved is getting better and better at integrating uh, both. Right, right. I guess it's a little bit like vinyl records. When uh, digital music came out, uh, people just said, oh, vinyl is dead. But there's something about the, you know, being able to, the tactile quality of touching things and holding a record in your hand. It's a little bit like shopping because I it's, shopping in person will probably never disappear. Yeah. And, you know, there's friction with online. I, you know, I think when, when everything goes well with technology, it's wonderful, but there's also the times it doesn't. And often in those cases, the technology alone creates more problems than it solves when we have to, when we have friction. A example being, um, we know that when we're shopping online through the pandemic, when the online orders uh, peaked, it suddenly shone a light on a few things. Um porch piracy as it was called where your item would be stolen from the back deck right or, or orders that are incomplete or incorrect and then what do you do about those and then handling of returns and for the retailers as well like it, returns are a big issue so people would be buying like three pairs of shoes in different sizes to send two back so there's a lot of imperfection that occurs with online um and, and it's a pretty flat format. Like you kind of know what you're looking for to get it as opposed to a really great store that's kind of curated some neat things you hadn't thought of before. So 
I, and I think with the store, it's so good for, for uh, troubleshooting. So even if you bought something online, it, the, the winner would be the, the store that I'll, I'll just make this up. But let's say a sport check, you've bought some gear and, and now it's not quite the right fit, but you still want it. Uh, it's so great that you can be able to take it over to a store nearby and sort of say, hey, I'm having a problem. Can you help me with this? So I think I think that the the total solution is really a combination of the two. But to your point about vinyl, there are people now that young people are kind of discovering the joy of a really cool store uh, in its own right. Yeah. Alone the digital. If if it's done well, there's a lot of bad retail out there. Yeah. But, when, but I guess it's like you say, curation is sort of the it's sort of the the value added in everything in this digital age is somebody showing you something cool that you might not be able to find yourself online, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think everything goes through eras and um, there's a lot of copycatting that happens in consumer goods and retail because it's fast to do that. A decade to two decades ago, there were all the big box stores exploding and the bigger, the better and stock as many things as you could. And then that gave way to these big marketplaces like an Amazon where you can get everything. Oh, my God, I can get everything on the planet. And there's an excitement. But what researchers kind of found is more uh, uh, psychology research is there's a thing called the paradox of choice where people gain a lot of value when they can pick from a few things. But when there's too many things to pick from, it creates a, a deep anxiety. It's almost a per paralytic uh, moment. And so really great retail is, is good at giving you a few options to choose from with a rationale for each. And now you can kind of feel grounded in your decision. Yeah, And that's when it works well. Like I said earlier, you know, there's a lot of poor retail out there that you can cite, but the good ones are good at that. Yeah, it's like when you go into a, a used bookstore or something and it's like a hoarder's basement. There's there's just nowhere to move and you don't know where to look. And there's so many yeah. things and it's just it's almost like paralysis by choice. Um, and one thing I've noticed, well, first of all, I should tell people we're talking to David Ian Gray, who is uh, from the consulting firm Dig360 in honor of Black Friday, we're talking about shopping. And I want to ask you about some of the big trends for this Christmas. But uh, I, I want to talk about, because we're talking about online shopping, um, I recently bought a couple of t-shirts and some socks. And everything was individually packaged in plastic, came in a huge, big uh, plastic bag. And I felt quite guilty for, for all the plastic that this small transaction generated. Is that a concern for the online retailers, all this packaging that online retailing is leading us to? It, it is on a couple of levels. Um, one is there's a cost to doing that for them, um, but they haven't quite figured out an alternative at this time that that kind of works where the product when the person gets the product they feel it's as new as getting it off the the shelf um and especially if it's something that's a little bit more in between perishable like um bath bombs or things like that right. they have to be packed a certain way the other issue though is of course for retail you know trying to address the consumer and societal interest in being greener i don't i don't know about being perfectly green but being being more sustainable the irony of a lot of this is, even if it's a green company, a lot of times you look at their their packaging on an e-com order and you go, you got to be kidding me. This this doesn't 
line up with the brand value. And I would say more, and that's one of the big knocks on, say, Amazon is it perpetuates a lot of waste. And it's not just that. It's the fact that you can get them on different days. And this promise that Amazon created as a benchmark in the industry of same-day delivery, we don't always need things like like that fast. Yeah. But that puts a real carbon footprint in play that that um, it, it, it is very real at scale. And so, yeah, I, I would say that is a concern. Yeah, and it's led to tons and tons of cardboard in the recycling bin i it's like everybody's got these cardboard flattened cardboard boxes but let's talk about the the fun part of shopping it's uh you know we're we're a lot of people don't like to talk about christmas shopping now but i mean it is the unofficial start or i would say official start of the christmas shopping season uh basically black friday is so what do you see as sort of the trends what do you think the hot retailers are going to be this holiday season well, I don't, you know, it's funny, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I don't know if, if I'm the best to sort of pick to pick a product or pick a, uh, you know, a, a sort of winning item. Uh, we don't look at it quite like that. But what I can say is the the, the retailers that are under more, more duress than others uh, this holiday. And I think if we go back to how we let off with people being um, much more budget conscious, you, you cited the quote about buying few for fewer people right. that's one way the other is maybe fewer items per person maybe it's trading down a bit instead of going for the shiny higher end item maybe it's something similar one notch below um any shift like that will create winners and losers in the system so you know if you're a really value oriented retailer you might actually do well this year but at the expense of um not the high-end luxury. They seem to be impervious to a lot of what we're talking about, but the higher end of a range, um, especially in things like clothing. Like I noticed, uh, I was just in Toronto and I noticed at a couple of the bigger retailers there that some of the uh, higher-end uh, outerwear brands like Macage or um, Moose Knuckles, for example, or Nobis, they're all sort of 25, 30% off in the stores I was looking at. I've never seen them, you know, even in, in discount periods, they might be 10% if anything. So what that's saying to me is they're overstocked. They're, they're, they're realizing they're kind of stuck with some things. So they're, you know, those reselling those items and those brands are going to be uh, more nervous this, this holiday. Right. Um, I think grocery is going to do, uh well because i think there's going to be a bit of a cutback on the dining out right with the expense of it and maybe a little bit more home entertaining so if i'm if i'm making some guesses here are some of them mm -hmm. uh, but i also think there's some other trends going on this year um worth noting and one of them is um a combat it's all to do with staff and store from the operational point of view by that i mean we know that staff have been kind of burned out coming out of the pandemic, front end staff, but also in the warehouses. At this time of year, it's, you know, all hands on deck. Yeah. And um, we're we're kind of seeing uh, more of a care for those staff in order to retain them than may have been shown in the past. And so one of the problems with this uh, cycle of like your Black Fridays and your Cyber Mondays and your Boxing Days and all the peak sales promotions in between is you get these spiky one days and then 
off the other and it puts a real strain on the system and not just the front end staff but all the people replenishing the stores with inventory etc so we've seen the last couple of years very quietly if if you're not in the game to win it on black friday and boxing day others are starting to smooth back their their marketing and their their hype of their promotions right. i think trying to get more of a you know a more of an even flow of sales through the period and a lot of that's just looking at their staff saying we don't want them not to be showing up and and right. burning interesting just get rid of some of that mania that might be yeah good. yeah yeah. And you said it yourself, you know, we had Boxing Day. Black Friday really wasn't that necessary in Canada uh, because we had our day to get rid of clearance, which was right after Christmas. And it was a brilliant time because you you know what sold and what didn't. So now you can kind of clear house through Boxing Week. Uh, Black Friday is a different thing. You, you don't want to lose all your margin too early. Um, mm-hmm. you know that I'll add that it's not just about selling the items. If you do it at too deep a discount, you could show up in February of next year saying we lost money through the holiday and we're now in big trouble. So there's a there's a real tension between trying to not lose a customer to your neighbor, but uh not doing it at all costs. Yeah, because the whole idea of it, even the name Black Friday, just seems so I don't know, tense and filled with uh, stress. So, you know, so maybe I guess what you're saying is maybe we'll see maybe a little less of that as the years go on, I wonder. Yeah. And I mean, that that was an American phenomenon. We we adopted it after the financial crisis in 08 or 09 because they mandated some of the Canadian divisions that they had to do it. They were just so hurting in the States. Uh, but that's one of those things where like in a farm market, if someone's selling their apples cheaper than you, you got to kind of follow suit. And I think what happened in Canada was others the next year started to, you know, so they don't lose out. Little FOMO, they started running their Black Friday. Then the media and industry picked up on it. They go, hey, this is a great, it isn't this great. We're getting people shopping early. But I've not seen any evidence that the total net proceeds of the whole, you know, November, December aggregate or any any different so i and i think a lot of retail is coming to that conclusion too that it, it it's not uh it's not the beautiful utopian sales thing that they thought it might have been it's it's got pros and cons right right and before i let you go what do you picture for malls because every time i go in malls now that i used to go when i was a teenager and it was like a a cultural hub and now it just seems like a ghost town uh what's the future of the mall well, you know what? Uh, in Canada, the the very best malls, uh, West Ed and Chinook and Calgary, amongst others, have actually done better the last five years and um, tend to be well-tenanted. Like, you know, at the end of the day, there's a growing list of international brands that want retail space in Canada that compared to other countries were fairly undercompeted, believe it or not. So the very best malls uh, tend to do well still. It's the secondary malls that are almost, there's such a, a chasm yeah. between those. And then and then you see the other ones you may be nice to are getting redeveloped into condos or whatever because they're not viable anymore. And when you talk about the traffic, going back a number of years, 
we used to use the mall as a means of doing our uh, research or homework on what we want to buy before Christmas, for example. We'd go out and go store by store and literally, quote unquote, window shop. That's all being replaced basically by the Internet, like that that researching aspect. And so what we're hearing from the industry is the traffic's down. But when people go to the right malls, they tend to be more likely to buy than than browse. Mm-hmm. It's a little more targeted a visit. Yeah. Interesting uh, stuff. Well, yeah. well, well, thanks for talking to us on this, uh, what will probably be another crazy shopping day. Uh, David Ian Gray uh, is uh, the founder of the retail consulting firm Dig360. Thanks for talking to us, David. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 